Hey Amber, how you doing tonight? I'm doing great. Hey everybody else, this is Maggie. Me and Amber are here with you and Crime Country. Tonight we're pulling into Washington. Or today. Depends on when you're listening. As of 2019, Washington State has a population of 7.615 million people. It became a state in 1889 and was the 42nd state in the United States. It's nicknamed the Evergreen State, and the state bird is the goldfinch. Washington is home to Olympic National Park, which is mostly a wild, wet area full of dense rainforest. Experts believe part of Olympic na- parts of Olympic National Park still have not been explored. There's also miles of beautiful coastline, the volcanic Mount St. Helens that had a massive eruption in 1980, the biggest eruption the lower 48 states has had since 1917, and it's also the only state to be named after a president. I personally have only been to Washington very, very briefly when we flew into Portland and we're waiting around for two hours before my cousin was meeting us for lunch and we drove into Washington and looked at really, really nice houses and then drove back into Portland. We crossed the uh, Columbia River to get there. It was beautiful. And then we went back to Portland and had lunch. So I I have very little experience with Washington, but it was really nice for the, like, 30 minutes I was there. Have you ever been to Washington? I have not been to Washington. Well, uh, we're gonna tell some probably really sad stories about Washington. Yes. But everyone should still visit Washington if they have any desire to do so, because it sounds really pretty with all the national parks and volcanoes. Or slightly horrifying. I don't know. One of, one of the two. <laughs> Take a risk. Go to Washington. <laughs> How are you doing tonight, Amber? I'm excited to hear about your story. Are you? But I'm also terrified. It's a really good story. Uh, maybe we should say on the top, like, what we're talking about. So I'm going to tell, um, a tragic love story. What are you going to talk about tonight, Amber? I am going to talk about a tragic massacre. <laughs> are there any not tragic <laughs> massacres? No, they're all tragic, but I just don't like <laughs> I needed to be... Uh, pretty intense. So, yeah, I'm going to be talking about the Raw Me Massacre. Oof. Um, That's so pretty interesting. Tragic. <laughs> <laughs> I think they're all tragic, so I'm wrong. I'm really not great at this sometimes. That's <laughs> hilarious. Um, so, well, I am, I'm not just talking about a love story. It's It's a tragic love story. Just be prepared for that. You can just call you the massacre, and we're all prepared for that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't think I have to uh, agree with magic. <laughs> massacre is bad off the top. Yeah, oh man! All right, uh, let's yeah. let's dive right into my tragic story. I'm about to tell you. Right off the top, I'd like to say I got most of my information out of the book 
While the City Slept by Eli Sanders. It's a really good book. I read it in two days, specifically just to learn the story. So for that purpose, I was just looking for, like, facts. And he tries to paint a picture in the book. He he gets very, very detailed in his description of, like, the area and the buildings and the what people were feeling and looked like and the history of the neighborhood and stuff. And I'm not really into that. Um, but besides that, I thought it was a really, really good book. And I would recommend it for sure if you're into this kind of story. This is the story of Teresa Butts and Jennifer Hopper. They were a beautiful couple. They had such big hearts and big personalities, and they were just head over heels in love with each other. They seem like the type of people I would love to be friends with in reality. Like, they were just really great people. So Teresa was born in 1969, and she was the ninth of 11 children. Ninth of 11 children. She was born into a very Catholic family. (laughs) (laughs) Um, In St. Louis. It was mostly brothers and a couple sisters, but she was a big tomboy herself. She was uh, the seventh, no, the ninth child. Oh my god. Um, But then there was a five to seven year gap between the 10th and 11th child. So she was the baby for like five to seven years. I can't remember. So she was the baby of the family for a while. And then they just popped out two more randomly because they wanted to have as many as the good Lord would allow. But she was just a cute little tomboy. At Christmas time, she always preferred her brother's boy toys, quote unquote, um, over the quote-unquote girl toys that she got herself. Um, In this day and age, I feel like we're working our way away from, like, boys like cars and girls like dolls. Yeah, guess what? Boys can have babies someday. Weird. Girls can drive cars. Weird. But... Yeah, I drive cars. I drive race cars. Yeah, you do. And you're, like, good at it and stuff. Ah, it's so much fun. I'm not that good. I'm pretty bad at it, but I have a good time, so it's okay. That's all that matters, but I also think you're being modest. (laughs) So, yeah. Fuck boys' toys and girls' toys. Uh, People will say that's a millennial generation idea of, like, not having gender-specific things, but fuck that shit. Like, okay, yeah, girls might lean more towards dolls and Barbies, and boys might lean more towards G.I. Joes and cars and monsters, but those can overlap. I loved Barbies. But I also loved fucking dinosaurs. They don't make a lot of dinosaur toys for little girls. Yeah, I don't, they don't. No, they don't. And it's frustrating. But anyways, we are not even a fourth way through my script and I got super sidetracked. So, she was a tomboy. She liked her brother's toys more than her own at Christmas time, but really nobody noticed it much at that time. They had 11 kids who's paying attention. Uh, and she still did have a soft side to her. She was she liked to wear dress cute dresses for special occasions. If they were going to weddings or going to church on Easter, she'd wear like a ruffly, girly dress and spin around and enjoy it. 
uh, and she loved to collect precious moment figurines starting in her early teens. I remember those. I know, they were so cute. And she would collect the figurines. Spencer had precious moments wallpaper liner in his man cave at her old house. Do you remember that? Oh, yes. Yeah. I remember that. <laughs> so anyways, yeah. She loved her boy things, but she also had a soft side. She also kept her hair really short at a very young age. She uh, got a short haircut that she convinced her parents to let her have. But then even after they got home, she got the kitchen scissors and cut it even shorter in her own style that she wanted. When she was like a little kid, she was always short but she was really tough and loud, and she just had this big, infectious laugh. She wanted everyone to feel comfortable and happy, and she just loved everybody, and she just seemed like the best person to be around. She was really popular in school. She loved everybody, and everybody loved her. She just wanted to be friends with everybody. She wanted to make everybody feel welcome, and it was noted, and she was elected the class president her senior year of high school. But she never really dated anybody in high school, which seemed a little odd to her family, but they were like, whatever, she's having a social life, she's fine. But then when it came to her senior prom, and nobody asked her to prom, her brother Tim, who was a year older than her, said, you have to go to your senior prom. So he took her to prom, and they danced and had a great time, and then everybody went to an after party at a hotel afterwards, and they were just drinking and having fun. But then the couple started to pair off and go off to bedrooms and and make out and be teenagers. And she just started crying and told her brother, like, I don't think I'm ever going to have love like that. Honey did his best to comfort her and stuff, but that's kind of where the night ended on a downer note. That's a bummer. Yeah, that's kind of sad. She yeah. just wasn't comfortable and who she was at that aspect, but who is in their senior year of high school, really. Yeah. So Jennifer Hopper was born in 1972. She was three years younger than Teresa. She was an only child to two parents, both of which were running away from their former lives. Her father, Sam, actually took on the last name Hopper. It was not his last name, but he was absent without leave from the military. Her mother, Marcia, had dropped out of college. Um, it wasn't for her, and she started selling her beaded necklaces on the college campus. But when that started getting old, she had a bunch of friends who were about to go on a mountain climbing trip, and she was like, fuck it, I'll go with them. So she left her life. She... I don't... I... I think she had a pretty structured family at home, but she didn't want anything to do with it. So she just was like, I'm going with these people. And she dropped everything and just went with her friends, uh, I think, to somewhere in California. Um, I, I, I don't know. But anyway, so she goes with her friends um, to this place in California where they're all doing mountain climbing and just kind of living off the land. And that's where she met Sam. So they fell in love, and they were living kind of as just nomadic people in this small area of California, but pretty quickly that lifestyle became really rough for Marcia, who was Jennifer's mom. She wanted a better life for her daughter, and Sam had started drinking a lot, 
So it just wasn't a very good environment. So she decided to leave and go home to her parents. So when Jennifer was about two years old, her mom left her dad and went back to Seattle, where her parents lived and where most of our story takes place. So she moved back in with her parents and her toddler, and it was going pretty well. And then they rented out a family home to her nearby, so her and Jennifer had a place to stay, just the two of them. Um, But she was having a really hard time getting on her feet and supporting herself. She had a ruptured disc in her back that needed surgery. But when she had the surgery on that ruptured disc in her back, the surgery didn't work. And then another disc in her back ruptured, so she needed another surgery. And that surgery also didn't work. So to this day, she walks bent over. Yeah, because the the ruptured discs in her back weren't able, able to be corrected easily. So she can't really get a job because she's just in pain all the time. The surgeries didn't work. And she's able to get on this government assistance program that approved her for this surgery where they fused her spine together. But since it was a government assistance program, they fused the spine together and then they just like threw a jar of pills at her. Like literally they just called it like the pain cocktail and gave her this huge jug of pills, pain pills. And then we're like, take this to get better after this surgery we gave you. We don't have money for you to come get better pills. Uh, So she... Yep. And she became a drug addict. Oh, what uh, do you know? She became addicted to pain pills. And so in the following years, she became depressed because that kind of goes hand in hand with being permanently in pain and addicted to pain pills. And she also yeah. developed epilepsy. And so at one point in time, she had like an epileptic seizure seizure out of nowhere and Jennifer was the only person around and had to call the cops to come help her mom and then when she was around 12 or 13 years old she had been spending time at her grandma's house and was going home to visit her mom and they got to her mom's house and her mom came out to the front and was like hey I'm not feeling very good can you just go back to grandma's for a while and she was like I guess and her grandma was like, okay, whatever, which is Marcia's mom, her her mom's mom. And she was like, yeah, okay, fine, because her mom was just like, oh my god, my daughter's a drug addict. I don't want my granddaughter to be around this. And so she was like, okay, thanks. But she was seeming really, like, lethargic and weird. And so they left, but the entire ride back to her grandma's house, Jennifer was like, something is wrong. Please take me back. Please take me back. Please take me back. And her grandma was like, no, it's fine. Like, you're fine. So they get back to her grandma's house and she was like, I, something's wrong. I need to go back. So she leaves her grandma's house and just starts walking back to her mom's house, which is like miles away. So eventually her grandma comes and picks her up and takes her the rest of the rest of the way to her mom's house. And they get there and go inside, and her mom was laying on the bed with an empty pill bottle and a suicide note next to her. And they called 911 and were able to save her. But she would have died had Jennifer not had this, like, nagging urge that something wasn't right. Um, So at that point, Jennifer just had to, like, 
draw a line on how connected she could be with her mom. So it changed their relationship entirely going forward. She could not have a good relationship with her mom. So she had a really, really turbulent home life, obviously. But in the meantime, everybody at school and in choir and stuff started noticing that she had a gorgeous singing voice. She was immensely talented. Um, everybody, her choir teachers, her, anybody that heard her sing was like, you need to pursue this. It's important. Her grandparents were like, get in choir at church. Her choir singer was like, apply or audition for all of the things. So when she was 12 years old, she was cast in the ensemble for The Music Man, and she officially became a choir, a theater kid. She loved it. It was like a family that she didn't have when she was in the theater. But then as soon as the show ended, it kind of went away, and she had to deal with that like loneliness afterwards. Shortly thereafter, her mom started dating this guy named Vance, and he moved in with them, and he had a younger daughter as well, so him and his daughter moved in with them, and Vance and Jennifer really butted heads, but he was really good for her mom. He helped her mom quit drugs cold turkey, and that was great, but at the same time, it just made the home a really hostile place, having, like, a teenage girl who's never had a father influence, and this father influence and his daughter changing the whole environment. So after a huge blowout fight, Jennifer moved out and moved in with her grandma, and her mom and Vance picked up and moved, and she has no idea where they even went. She didn't talk to her mom for two years after that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But despite that, she had a really close relationship with her grandma. She had a very supportive grandma, um, who was also very Catholic, I believe. Very religious. I don't remember what religion. But anyway, so she thrives musically throughout high school. She gets accepted to the Boston Conservatory, which is known for training Broadway actors. And Broadway is her end goal at this point. She physically may not have the Broadway physique, but she has such an amazing natural talent that that's her goal. So after high school, both girls move away from home to go to school. Teresa goes to a few different colleges. At one point, she tries joining a sorority, and they deny her. So then she becomes tries to become like a fraternity sister, which I'd never heard of before, but it's um, like a fraternity sponsors a girl in the college to be their sister, and she goes to all the parties and stuff. But then at, like, one of the fraternity parties she went to, people started getting belligerent, and they were all, like, throwing beer at each other and stuff, and they just, they noticed her standing there in the corner as, like, the only girl, and she's only five foot two, and they all just, like, started screaming at her and throwing shit at her and just being awful, and she was like, yep, done with that, yeah. So she, yeah, exactly. Like, what's the, no, thank you. I don't need to be involved, I guess. And she was just trying to find herself. She just liked people. She wanted to be involved, but she just wasn't getting accepted anywhere. So she ended up leaving the university and going to a community college. And then she left that for a different college. I can't remember. But anyways, in the long run, she didn't get involved in fraternities or sororities, but she had a good college 
term and ended up graduating with her business degree. Which business degrees are fucking awesome. Administration, what, what? Woo! <laughs> uh, meanwhile, Jennifer went to the Boston Conservatory. She left brief- briefly because she just felt like she didn't fit in. Um, and she, she went back home to Seattle. And her old choir teacher or somebody convinced her, like, you need to go back. You need to see this out. She'd had a really mean teacher in one of her classes that basically convinced her she could never make anything of her singing voice but her choir teacher convinced her she needed to go back and see it through and they accepted her back on her school so she goes back she finishes out uh boston conservatory school in the meantime on her summers off she had started doing work on different kinds of ships as like a singer and entertainer on different cruise ships oh that's fun yeah and so she would do like steamboats and stuff and uh, sing and then go back to college in the fall. And then Teresa, when she had graduated college, she started working cruise ships in Seattle that did a cruise up to Alaska, but she was just doing, um, maid work and she was working her way up to become the head maid on these cruises. And they weren't like regular cruises. This wasn't carnival cruises. They were like rich people cruises that only had like 40 customers on the ship. Yeah, and so it was, like, these fucking rich-ass people, and they just were waited on hand and foot every day, but the crew became really close because, it, you know, they had time to actually be close in the evenings when they were off and stuff. So she got really close. She made this, like, cruise ship family, and she loved it. She had a great time after college, and she got to kind of see the world, and you don't have to pay for rent, you don't have bills, you don't have anything. You're just saving up money at that point, and so she was really loving life. And then after Jennifer left Boston Conservatory, she'd done that a little bit. And so she started doing it more often too. So they were kind of running in the same crowd and not meeting each other, which was really interesting. So Jennifer had this amazing voice and she was trying to work her way to Broadway, but she was a bigger girl and she had a really like soft leading lady voice, but she had a secondary character body like she was cast as like the matronly second secondary character and it just didn't match her voice so she she never really made it in broadway which was her goal in high school but it never really happened for her so either way they both had their run of doing different jobs um some on cruise ships and then some elsewhere and they both ended up in seattle while they were working in Seattle, they happened to work in the same building on the 22nd floor. Teresa was a building management person, and so she managed the building that these other companies uh, rented, and Jennifer was one of the people they rented to. So their offices were directly across from each other on the 22nd floor in this building in downtown Seattle. And at first, they just kind of became friends, and they liked each other's personalities. They both had big personalities, but Teresa definitely had the bigger personality. She was just friendly. She loved everybody. She didn't put up with no shit. And Jennifer was just a sweetheart that everybody loved. She had her own big personality. And uh, one day, Teresa invited Jennifer to go see a concert 
downtown and Teresa was like, heck yeah, I'll go. So they go downtown and they're like during the course of the night, Teresa drops like, oh yeah, my ex-girlfriend, blah, 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 blah. And Jennifer kind of was like, oh, huh. And then later on in the night, Jennifer was like, oh yeah, my ex-girlfriend, blah, blah, blah. And Teresa was like, ah, yeah. And so, and both of them, they were in their early thirties at this point and it had taken them a very long time to come to terms with their sexuality. They, um, Teresa obviously came from a huge Catholic family and she took a really long time to come out with her, out to her family and they struggled with it big time. And Jennifer wasn't even like super confident in it at this point. She'd had one very serious girlfriend and she was like, oh, wow. Yeah. Like, I think that's who I am. Um, and she tried coming out to her grandma and her grandma was like, no, that's not okay. And so it was like, oh God, that sucks. But I am who I am. So anyways, they meet each other and they both mention like, oh, I've had this girlfriend in the past. And then they're like, oh. So then the next time they hang out, Teresa had a really hard day at work and Jennifer had noticed like her expressions across the hall in her office and was like, hey, are you okay? And she was like, ah, you want to go get a drink? And Jennifer was like, yes. So they go and get a drink together and have a wonderful evening. And eventually Teresa asks if she can kiss Jennifer and Jennifer's over the moon. It happens. They kiss. It's wonderful. And they just start this beautiful life together. They start doing service work together. They volunteered for Juvenile Diabetes Research Foundation. They joined the board of a homeless advocacy organization. They regularly attended church services together. They were just living a simple life, doing good things for the world, loving each other, being wonderful, wonderful human beings. So in the summer of 2008, they got engaged and they started planning their wedding. Their wedding was planned for September 12th, 2009. So gay marriage wasn't technically legal in 2009, so it was technically a commitment ceremony, but to them it was a, a wedding, and that's fucking bullshit anyways, and now it's legal. So anyways, they were planning their wedding for September 12th, 2009. They had been dress shopping. Teresa had found the perfect dress for her for $70 out the door. And she was the more tomboy one, and it was just wonderful. Like, it fit perfect. It didn't have to be altered. It was just fabulous. $70 out the door. Uh, Jennifer was having her dress custom made. They had a oh venue gosh. booked. They, yeah, she was more girly, and it was going to be gorgeous. Yeah. And they had a venue booked. Everything was just going perfect in their lives. They loved each other so much. Everything was wonderful. Until... The morning of July 19th, 2009, less than two months before their wedding, at about 1.30 in the morning, Jennifer woke up with a start. She doesn't know what woke her up, but something alarmed her. And when she opened her eyes, there was a naked man standing next to the bed with a large knife yeah. in one hand. What the crap? Yeah, and Jennifer didn't know if Teresa was awake, but she couldn't take her eyes off the man to look over to see if Teresa was awake. 
because uh, he had a big knife and she just couldn't look away because she was so afraid. Yeah, like, what do you do? Like, uh, hi, sir. <laughs> what you doing there? Yeah, and so she woke up with a start and this guy's standing there and he's like, don't scream. I don't want to hurt you. You just need to know to do exactly what I say. And then Teresa was awake for sure. Um, so first he told Teresa to take off all of her clothes and he raped her. He held onto the knife the entire time and Jennifer just laid completely still, still because she didn't want him to do anything to Teresa. He didn't want, she didn't want him to kill Teresa. So she just tried to like put her arm as close to Teresa's as she could to make Teresa know that she was there. I cried like three times reading this story, so we'll see if I make it through. So, he's raping Teresa. She's trying to just let Teresa know she's there and just like get it over with and get this man gone so they can move on with their lives. So, he finishes that and then he tells Jennifer to take off all of her clothes and he proceeds to rape her. And Teresa, in every way possible, he, it's horrible. I'm not going to go into more detail than that. Um, But when he's done, they both back up on the headboard on the bed and just hold their knees to their chests completely nude. And he is like, I don't feel too relieved. That was just the first round. Yeah, so in all, there were three quote-unquote rounds, as he called them. Um, And he did everything imaginable to these poor women during all three of these rounds. All, and never letting go of that knife in his hand. Um, At one point, Teresa was like, please don't hurt us, we're good people. And he said, I believe that. I wish we could have been friends. And she what said, <laughs> And she said, Me too. Maybe we still can. And he said, Do I seem like a good person to you? And she put her fingers to his chest and she said, I believe there's some good in here. Uh. And he said, No more talking. So, after slash during the third round, slash quote-unquote round, I don't know, um, at one point he makes them get up and walk into the living room where he left all of his clothes, and up to this point, he continued to tell them, like, do what I say and, and I won't hurt you, I promise, just do what I say. But they go into the other room and he picks up his pants and he pulls out a second knife out of his pant pocket and tells him to go back to the room. And lay on the bed. And then when they get on the bed, he climbs on top of them and he puts one knee on each woman. And he just starts slashing at them each with the knives at their throats. And Jennifer just has blood splurting out of her neck continuously. And the more she tries to fight him off, the more blood's just popping out. And she just kind of has this moment of acceptance. Like, I'm gonna die and she just kind of relaxes back. And when she does, she feels this weird uh, force of movement off of her. 
and Teresa had pushed the man off of them, off of the bed, and gotten up. And so the man has knives, he's standing up, Teresa's standing up, and he's still trying to stab at her, and she grabs a bedside table and she shoves it at the man, and she just hurls herself out a closed window. It had been open when they went to bed, but now it's closed. So she hurls herself out of this closed window and starts running towards the road. And Jennifer's scrambling out of bed and the man's standing there and they're watching Teresa and she's running towards the road and then she just kind of collapses in the road. And they have a moment of like looking at each other and they both just take off. I don't know where the man went, but Jennifer runs towards the front door and she's trying to open the door, but she's so bloody she can't even get the fucking door open for a minute. So... She finally gets the door open and she's just screaming and she's naked and she's running to the neighbor's house and just pounding on their door and pounding on the door and pounding on the door and nobody's answering and she realizes nobody's here and I don't know where the man went. I think he went out the window, Um, but she turns around and she sees like people are reacting. Neighbors are actually doing stuff and so... There's, like, a girl on her cell phone in the road with 911 and standing over Teresa's body. And then there's um, somebody running up to Jennifer with, like, she's taking off her sweater and she's handing it to Jennifer. And Jennifer instantly holds it to her throat and she's like, help us, help us. And um, the girl on the phone with 911 is like, please get here please come, please come, please, um, man, please wake up, please wake up, please wake up, please come, please come, please come, and just screaming, and Teresa's holding the sweatshirt to her neck on the porch of the neighbors, and she's like, don't help me help her, and finally the police show up, and they had to like produce a barricade because they knew they knew there was an attacker, so they had to make sure they had enough backup before they even came in. So it took extra long because they needed to make sure enough people were to the area before they could go in. So finally, a cop comes up to Jennifer and she's like, "I, I I'm fine. Go get her." And they were like, "No, like we need to help you." And they load her into an ambulance, and and the cops like, "Ma'am, stop screaming!" And she didn't even realize she was screaming. Yeah. At this point, and. They get her loaded onto an ambulance and she's just screaming at Teresa to make it. So they get Jennifer into the hospital and they're working on her and she keeps asking how Teresa is and they won't tell her. And finally this detective shows up and she's like, is she alive? And the detective is like, no. Oh my god. And she kind of just appreciated her honesty at that point because no one yeah. even else would have even told her. Right, they were just not giving her anything. So how long did the ordeal, like, with him in the apartment or their house, how long did that go on for? 90 minutes. 90 minutes? 90 minutes. Ugh. It was an hour and a half of him torturing Jennifer survives and she goes on to testify against him and in her testimony she's just strong and wonderful and blatant about what he did to them and it literally like he 
this is really gruesome. I don't, do you want to know details? I mean, I do, but I so don't know. He, like at first, after he raped Teresa, he told Teresa to perform oral sex on Jennifer and she just kind of like faked it. And Jennifer was like, I was really grateful for that. And then uh. he made Jennifer get up on her knees and he anally raped her and then he made them both perform oral on him and and three rounds of this over 90 minutes of time of him just doing everything he could imagine against That's disgusting what is wrong with this guy yeah um Obviously so a lot a lot we'll get to it <laughs> i kind of so they take Jennifer to the hospital. They tell her Teresa didn't make it. She'd been stabbed in the heart one of those last times he stabbed her before she jumped out of the window. And she just had enough time to run to the road before it killed her. And then she collapsed in the road. But she, like, saved Jennifer, really. Like, she was so strong and she, yeah. you know, just... Otherwise, they'd both be dead. Jennifer had given up. Yeah, so Teresa died. Jennifer's heart broke in. In the aftermath of this, the family starts planning her funeral and stuff, and they're looking for the guy who did this. So within the ne next week or two, they are able to track down the man who did this. When they did so, they called Jennifer and let her know. When they called to tell her, she was in St. Louis for Teresa's funeral. And she was kind of relieved because she was like, okay, I can go back home. But the man they found was Isaiah Calabu. Calabu. Calabu? I apologize for anyone with this last name. It's K-A-L-E-B-U. Calabu. Isaiah Calabu was the person who committed this crime. And the second part of our story is about him. And it's about the failings of the mental health support system in the United States. Oh. <sighs> yeah. <laughs> uh, Isaiah Calabu was the son of an immigrant father who escaped civil war in the Republic of Uganda and a mother who'd grown up in the foster care system and suffered a lot of abuse. They had Isaiah shortly after they met, um, but his father was attending school in California, so his mother basically raised him as a single single mother until the age of six years old. Once his dad graduated college, he moved in with them, and then they had another baby really quick, so it changed his life really drastically when he was six years old. His mother struggled with mental health uh, her entire life. And she had attempted suicide when he was 18 months old. So he temporarily lived with his Aunt Rachel, who was his father's sister, for a brief amount of time until his mom was willing and able to take care of him again. After he was six and his father moved in with him, the house was very abusive. His father would hit his mom and the kids regularly. He was a really strict disciplinarian. He came from a very different culture, and he used that as an excuse, but um, it, it was a very unhealthy environment. Isaiah started becoming more and more withdrawn and secretive at school, 
his teachers started noting his behavior and wanting to help. They noted he was a really active kid and hard to settle down. And they tried to get the parents involved to help work on these problems. Um, but his family refused to accept that there was a problem. He was a really, really smart kid. And so every time a teacher was like, hey, we need help. He needs more assistance at home dealing with these issues. The family was like, no, he's like the smartest person in our family. He's fine. Um, but he did need help and he didn't get it. Yeah. With his issues at school, he kind of started getting kicked out of school or getting in trouble. So his family started like putting him in different schools. He went to private school for a little while and then a different private school, a seventh day Adventist school, which was their strict religion they followed. And he went to like two seventh day Adventist schools and just was bouncing around here and there, but never doing anything about his actual issues. And then when he was 17 years old, his parents got into, like, a blowout fight. And I'll be all of fights. I mean, in the meantime, before this point, his mom had gone to the ER on five separate occasions with, quote-unquote, accidental stab wounds that oh she, quote-unquote, did to herself. But in reality, his dad had stabbed her. So it was a super abusive household. So when he was 17, his parents got in a big fight. I think that this is, like, accidental. Like, I get that people go and they say these things, and, like, it's hard for people to be like, look, ma'am, you're lying. Like, but Jesus. Yeah, and she also had, like, attempted suicide a couple times also. Yeah. So it's really rough, and they finally file for divorce, and they both file for restraining orders against each other. Um, and in the process of their divorce and restraining orders, a counselor interviews all of their kids, and the counselor was like, I highly recommend therapy for their son Isaiah. He needs it. He's viewed a lot of abuse. He needs yeah. therapy. But nothing ever came of that. He never got any sort of therapy. He, No one ever acknowledged how he was feeling about any of these situations. So, his senior year, even, like, he was in this private school, but his parents got divorced, and his dad was refusing to give his mom any money, so no one was paying for his private school, so they wouldn't let him go to class. Somehow, he still graduated high school, but he couldn't get his transcripts until someone paid the overdue bills, which no one ever did. That's so shitty, even, especially because it's high school, like, come the fuck on, like, can't kids graduate high school without going broke? Yeah. Like it's not college. Yeah, exactly. And that's a whole other thing. But, <laughs> yeah, so this poor kid, he somehow amazingly graduated high school, but he was a really smart, smart person. So he graduates, and he tries to go to college, but he has issues, and they can't even get his transcripts because the call, the high school won't release them until they get the debt paid off and shit. Um, so he tries to go to pilot school because that was his big dream is to become a pilot. But after he'd invested all this time and money into pilot school, he found out he was colorblind and his dreams of being a pilot went straight out the window. So in his family's eyes, this was the beginning of the end for him, basically. Um, 
After this, he was arrested for stealing two CDs from Kmart. And his Aunt Rachel, who he had lived with for a brief time when he was 18 months old and his mom attempted suicide, uh, she bailed him out. And then he never went back to court for any of his court dates after that. So then a while later, he got pulled over for a taillight being out and he was arrested because he had an open warrant for the two CDs. And his aunt failed. What a dumb thing to get a fucking warrant on. Yeah, you stole two CDs from Kmart. Really? Oh my god. Kmart's not even like a thing anymore. <laughs> yeah, so his aunt Rachel ba- bailed him out again. And um, he was bouncing around from one job to another. He just couldn't stay anywhere. He quit some jobs. He got fired from others. He had over 20 jobs in a two-year time frame. Oh my gosh, I don't even think I've had, I have not even had 20 jobs in my entire career time frame. Me neither. (laughs) Not even close. I've worked for like three separate companies in my life. (laughs) Um, But his mental health was deteriorating rapidly. So one time like his car was towed and he called his mom and told her that he was going to kill everybody at the tow yard. And she freaked out and she called the tow yard and was like, Hey, just so you know, like, look out. My son's angry. There's something wrong with him. And she called the cops and was like, Hey, my son needs help. And they were like, we can't do anything. He didn't actually do anything. And he didn't actually do anything. So nothing came of that. Uh, And then another time he calls his sister and they were really close but he calls her up and he's like, you're a horrible mother. I'm going to call DCFS on you. I'm going to take have your kids taken away. I'm going to take them and take care of them myself. I'm going to ship them off to Africa. You don't deserve to have your kids. And she was like, where the fuck is this even coming from? Like, nothing. We haven't gotten a fight. Nothing happened. And later that day, she's at work and he's outside her work in the parking lot, just like walking around. So then she gets off her shift and she calls her mom and she's like, hey, you need to come here. So her mom comes, and they're trying to get him in the car with them, and he's just, like, a robot, and he's acting like he doesn't even see him. Like, he's just walking. He would have walked right through their car if he could. He just was, like, gone. He had this blank look on his face, and they're trying to be like, get in the car. What are you doing? And he just completely ignores them, and he walks towards the bus stop and keeps going. And on the way, he shows him a knife that's in his hand. And they don't call the cops at this point? So at this point, they knew there was something really, really wrong with him. And they tried to have him committed to a mental health facility. But they can't, legally. He is not, uh, there's no proven threat to himself or other people. He hasn't hurt anybody. He hasn't said he's going to hurt anybody. At this point in time, legally, no one can do anything about it. So later in that year, in that year, it's 2008 at this point, he shows up at that same sister's house early in the morning and he's pounding on the door like he's going to fucking break it down. So by the time she gets down to the door, he's busted through it and he's in her house and he's like, hey, what are you making for breakfast? And she's like, my kids are sleeping. What the fuck are you doing? Like, this isn't okay. And he was like, I just, I want breakfast. And her boyfriend wakes up and he's like this isn't okay and she's like 
pissed and he's just acting all calm and she's like what the fuck are you doing and then he gets like defensive and he drops a six-pack of beer while he's like screaming back at her and she's like you don't even drink what is going on right now i don't understand what you're doing and uh he gets really angry and he's not acting like himself so the sister's boyfriend comes up and he puts him in a headlock and he kind of snaps back to himself and he's like oh i'm sorry I, i don't know what's going on but she's pissed off and she's like get the fuck out of my house And she calls her mom to come get him. He had been living with that sister at that point in time. And so she's just throwing all his clothes out. And she's like, mom, come get him. I'm done. And so. uh, How old is he at this point? Early 20s. Early 20s. No, he's like 22, 23. And a little while later, he comes to her house and he has all these scratches on his hands. And she's like, hey, what was that? And he's like, oh, my dog bit me. Um. But in reality, there was this recent break-in to the Auburn City Hall that was never, like, they never found out who did it. But then eventually they find out it was him. Yeah. Uh, And they had security camera. But that isn't found out until long in the future. So he's living with their mom. And being weird and his mom's just trying to accept her son and stuff and one day he comes home and he's like mom guess what i found a new place to live and she's like great and so he's like come on let's go see it and so she drives him to this house that he directs her to and it's this huge house downtown seattle bigger than any house they'd ever lived in as a family and he's like this is it come inside and they go inside and there's a business functioning out of this house. It's like old downtown. It's an old house that's been converted into a financial aid business or something. And he just starts like telling people they're fired and he owns this business and that he's an African king. And this home had been stolen from him during the sugar trades of the 19th century. And they all need to get out. Um, So obviously the police are called. And his mom just begs the police to take him to the hospital and not jail. Because she's been like, I've been trying to tell people he's gonna hurt someone eventually. Please just help him. And so they do. They take him to the hospital to be evaluated. His mom thinks he's schizophrenic because her mom was schizophrenic. Um, But they bring him to the hospital and they diagnose him as bipolar and in a manic... That was my guess. Bipolar. Well, that's what he's diagnosed as bipolar and in a manic state um but during the evaluation he's doing his best to become like uh act as sane as possible yeah obviously and they don't commit him they just suggest they don't yeah they suggest he starts taking lithium oh just let me throw some pills at you that'll that'll be fine and trust that you'll take them yeah Mental health is so hard. Yeah. Yeah. So they release him and just, like, tell him he should be taking these pills. And his mom is like, hey, if you want to live with me, you have to take your medication. And he gets pissed. He's like, fuck you. That's bullshit. And she's like, I just want you to take your meds. And he was like, no, fuck you. You're the worst. And he packs a backpack and just leaves her house. But then a couple days later, he has a pit bull also, as it's just going through all this stuff with him. Um, So after a couple days, he shows back up at her house, and she hears, like, glass shattering, and she looks out the window, and he's breaking out the windows out of her van. And 
she calls the police because he's being scary and he's gone before the police come. And so the police bring her to her daughter's house and they're like, we'll keep an eye out for him. Sorry. And so while she's at her daughter's house, he shows up there because he knew that's where she was going to go. So he's standing across the street from her daughter's house and throws a rock and breaks through the window on her front door. And they all come outside and they're like, what are you doing? And he's yelling across the street and he's like, come get me, come get me. You motherfuckers, come get me. Actually, like, he doesn't even know them. Like, they're just, like, strangers that are out to get him. And they said his eyes were just completely black. And he takes his pit bull off the leash and he's like, get him! And his pit bull doesn't do anything. But he starts swinging his leash around and some of those leashes, that's like cloth, but the very end is a six, eight inch bit of chain. Yeah. And he's swinging around and around and around and he fucking hits his mom with it in the head. Oh my god. And knocks her over. And so his sister, who's not a small girl, tackles him because she's just like, what the fuck? So he hits their mom, knocks her over. His sister tackles him. Her boyfriend comes, helps her hold him down. And she just lays down on the ground next to him and is like, I love you. What's going on? Like, I love you. I just, I love you. You're loved. Like, what, what were you thinking? What's going through your head? And he just won't say anything. And they wait for the police to come and he gets arrested. Um, so the next day when he's waiting arraignment, his mom and sister go and visit him and they're like, well, what were you thinking? Like, they're just trying to get some answers. Like, where was your head at? Like, let's understand this. And he's like, you guys were dra- trying to have me committed and I'm not crazy. And they were just like, ugh. So he refuses that there's anything wrong with him. Yeah. So at that court hearing, the judge is like, I'd like you to have a 30-day mental health evaluation. And... Isaiah laughs at the judge and he tells him that he's going to appeal that decision and the judge better save all of his money and liquidate all of his assets because Isaiah's going to win and he's going to lose everything. And the judge is like, yeah, you're confirming to me that you need a mental health evaluation. Exactly. Like, keep it coming. Keep it coming. Yeah. And so as he's being escorted out of the courtroom... He's yelling at the judge, better sell all your stuff. I ain't going to lose. And the, uh, he gets committed to a mental health facility. Um, Immediately, right? I yeah, for 30 days. <laughs> it's like 30 days and then he's going to be reevaluated by the judge. So yeah. the whole time there, he's a pain in the ass. He's angry. He's threatening. He's demanding. But he's never actually violent. Uh, and the evaluation in the hospital is that he's bipolar. But that more evaluation is needed to determine other aspects of his mental disturbance. So they determine he's not competent to stand trial and he poses a risk for future danger to others. And um, they suggest competency restoration, which is basically an extended stay at the hospital and... uh, they requested that the hospital has the authority to make him take his medicine because they can't make him take medicine unless they have that. So the judge agrees. And the next day between like his court hearing where the judge is like, yep, that's what we're going to do. 
he has to wait in jail before he goes back to the hospital and he attempted to commit suicide. This is May of 2009. Uh, he doesn't succeed and he goes back to the hospital for competency restoration. But that's not therapy. That's literally just trying to restore competency. They're just trying to make him competent so he can go to trial about the bad thing he did. So, basically, they're just, like, making him take the medicine he needs. So, he ends up on lithium, which seems to help his mood, but he still denies there's any mental health problems with him. He also seems to display a lot of narcissistic tendencies, but eventually he was declared competent in July, and in August, he was back in court declared competent he was still awaiting trial for the assault against his mom but he was released to his aunt's custody that release had provisions of monthly meetings with a mental health professional and he was supposed to take his medicine every day he went to one of the appointments with a mental health special specialist and missed the next three He was never taking any of the medication, but his aunt never, I don't know if she told anybody, if she did, nothing came of it. So he was not following any of the provisions of his release, but he didn't get taken back into custody because no one seemed to care. So this was still 2008. I said 2009 earlier, but I was wrong. So anyways, he shows up to, he miss, he goes to one appointment with a mental health specialist, then he misses the next three, and then he randomly shows up to one in January and he argues that his medication's not helping him and he, it, he can't function on it. And so they just agree to lower his dosage without confirming he even was taking any of it or testing his blood to see if he was taking any of it. Nothing. So they just lower his dosage. No checking into if he was even taking it. And then he just kind of dropped off the map from January until June. For the most part, he was living with his Aunt Rachel that same aunt that had taken him in when he was 18 months old and his mom tried to commit suicide, but he just isolated himself into his room or he left and just was walking around with his dog. He didn't interact with people. His mom and sister both had restraining orders against him and his aunt seemed to be the only family member that wasn't afraid of him. So then in this time frame, he was at a dog park, dog park, letting his dog run around off leash And he was in an area where your dog couldn't be off-leash, so this animal control person comes up, and he's like, hey, you need to leash your dog. And he flips the guy off, and he starts following him around, just yelling vulgar things at the guy. And so the guy calls the cops, and the cops come. And when they come, he has a golf club in one hand and his dog in the other. And at first they're talking to him, and he puts down the golf club, but then he picks it back up, and he's, like, being all threatening. And so they taser him. And they beanbag him, and they taser him again, and then they finally arrest him. And he's taken a court for that, but it's in a different county than his other court stuff, so he just gets released. And so then, two days after that, his aunt filed a restraining order against him. She said he was threatening her and destroying her property, and she was scared of him. The next day... His Aunt Rachel and her tenant, J.J. Jones, who was a former quarterback for the Jets. Jets! That's Aaron's favorite football team! Yeah. (laughs) So the next day after he was 
His aunt filed for a restraining order. His aunt and J.J. Jones, former quarterback for the Jets, were killed in a house fire. Oh my god, he he lit them on fire, the house on fire, didn't he? That was caused by arson. That's but never been get... determined. Of course it hasn't. Jeez Louise, this is infuriating. Um, three days later, he was back in court about the attack on his mom that had happened 18 months before. Um, and the prosecutor at this point was like, please hold him on $50,000 bail. We think he killed his aunt. And the judge was like, no, we don't have any, like, reason to hold him at this point because he showed up today. He, we have no proof that he did that. We can't hold him. We're not going to set bail at this point. Bye. So they were like, he's free to go until the next hearing. This was on July 13th. His next hearing was supposed to be August 3rd. So on July 17th, his defense lawyer, who had been appointed to him, went to the judge and she was like, I think I need to withdraw as his lawyer. I'm 100% sure he killed his aunt. And I had been communicating with his aunt a lot. I think I'm going to be a witness in the case about that. I can't be his lawyer. And so she withdrew and she was like, please revoke his previous release. And the judge was like, nah, I don't need to do that. Oh my gosh. This was on July 17th. (sighs) The morning of July 19th, he somehow found an open window in the house of Jennifer and Teresa. He broke in. He brutalized them, he raped them, and he murdered Teresa Butts. And he could have easily been in prison before this point, but was not because of... Oh my god, he so could have easily been in prison. Yes, he had so many mental health issues. Or a mental health, like, institution. Not even prison. If he wasn't in prison... He could have been in a freaking mental health institution. He, there were so many opportunities for this man to get some sort of help. Yeah. And none of them were taken. And it's infuriating. And had he been properly treated or diagnosed at any point in his life before this, it's possible that three people's lives could have been saved. Teresa, yeah. his aunt, and J.J. Jones. But... Yeah. He, they weren't, and he's went to court about this. They determined he was competent to stand trial. He was found guilty. He's going to spend life in prison, but it should never have gotten to this point. Um, it's when this happened in two thousand nine. The entire country as a whole had a D rating in mental health, and I'm sure it hasn't got much better than that since then. Um, it's estimated that 20 to 30% of people in the prison system in the United States are mentally ill. There's just nothing set up in our society to help those people or to make it a better situation to actually get them on the right right path to have a good life and be good, prominent members of society. And it's infuriating and sad and it sucks. And 
Teresa died because of it. And she was a completely innocent bystander in this whole situation. So that's my extremely long story. Jennifer is doing well. She testified at his trial and she was so strong and so just well-spoken and wonderful. She is healing herself through music. She's done like performances. She's created a foundation to help survivors of sexual abuse and she is using that to vocalize things. The judge in the trial was like, I hope you get to have the wedding that you deserve someday. And she hasn't yet, but hopefully she finds someone else to spend her life with. But she's okay. She knows Teresa would want her to be strong. Teresa was such a strong person. So she's doing good. Something else I didn't mention, but I kind of wanted to bring up. Teresa's family was super Catholic and they loved her so much, but they were really unaccepting of her lifestyle. So with her upcoming wedding, it was less than two months away and they were still, her parents were still like trying to decide if they were going to even come. Religion aside, and just be a fucking decent person. Be a parent. Support your daughter. Yeah. Support your kid. Yeah. So her mom had mostly decided, like, okay, it's a big day for her. Like, I need to be there. And her dad was like, okay, I think I'll fly into Seattle for that week so I can see her. But I just can't go to the ceremony. I just don't believe in that. So they were coming around. And so for her funeral, that they threw when Jennifer was in St. Louis, when they found the guy. At the funeral, they didn't even mention Jennifer in any of the speeches or anything. But they did, like, embrace her. She was with the family. They embraced her. They loved her. They were supportive of her. And she says she's fine with that. She understands that they love their daughter and that's just where they are in life and then she appreciates she knows they love her but two months later when they had the scheduled wedding they held just a memorial instead at the venue where they were supposed to get married that's so sad it's heartbreaking and they were literally just beautiful they they just seemed like such good people they were the juvenile diabetes foundation they were doing a homeless organization they were just helping people they just were living a simple happy life and just loving each other as good people and who could have a problem with that i don't understand that mindset and this episode's going to be released in july so we're slightly missing pride month but (laughs) <laughs> it's bullshit that anyone could question that kind of love and people yeah. are people it's not affecting you in any way fuck you and your small minds just let people love whoever they love yeah it definitely shouldn't be anyone else's concern like whatever people should just Love who they love and be happy. Yeah. Isn't that a heartbreaking story? Yeah, that's awful. And on so many levels. 
You're welcome for telling you this horrible story. Uh, well, mine is going to be awful, too, but I don't know, man. <laughs> um, can we take a brief break, and I'm going to go refill my drink, and then we'll continue? Yeah. That was pretty long, but it was a good story. Isn't it a sad story? Yeah. And I left out a bunch of stuff. Really? Yeah. Because the book was so detailed. So it was like... Way more about... Isaiah's background and his court hearings and... His family and stuff. But it's like... I don't want to focus that much on him. Oh, and also like... He was evaluated by a bunch of different therapists and psychologists and stuff, and all of them were like, we're pretty sure he's faking it. Really? Yeah, and I, like, he definitely has some mental health issues, and he has a god complex, and he probably does have, like, bipolar, but... It's nothing as bad as he's trying to make it seem. And in all of his court hearings, he was trying to be, like, belligerent and ridiculous and try and make himself look really mentally unwell. And I just have a really hard time determining, like, if he is or not. And it just is, like, so upsetting because had something been done earlier in his life... It probably wouldn't have turned out this way. And still, to this day, nobody knows how he picked those girls. Yeah. Like, why them? Why that house? I don't know. That's so crazy. But thankfully, he didn't, like, plead not guilty by reason of insanity. Because that would have really pissed me off. He refused. He refused. He would not admit there was anything mentally wrong with him. And it's like, there is. There's something mentally wrong with you. There's something wrong with you. So it's just upsetting. Yeah. Yeah, but that's my depressing case. Oh. I'm excited to hear you're awful, I guess. Should we like try and lighten it up with like a funny story in the middle? Or at the end, maybe? It is a massacre, so it's pretty bad, but, like, it's not... As detailed? Yeah, it's not as detailed. Like, I definitely don't have, like, ins and outs. Um, So there's kind of, like, a good story at the end. Okay. I guess we'll just see where we fall at that point. Okay. Sounds good. Tell me about your massacre. Alright. Are you ready? Yeah, I'm ready. You're doing so, quote air quotes. Yeah. <laughs> quote unquote down a uh, Chinatown. Just well. So it's in Chinatown in Washington, and um, so I didn't realize that 
as I was looking into this story, there's like a lot of Asian gangs and stuff, which was hmm. super interesting to me, but really like annoying because my research <laughs> skills, like they are not very good anymore. Like I used to, in like high school and college, I could research and I knew all of these sweet websites to go to to get like legit information. <laughs> and now I'm like trying to search for something and I'm, I just get so frustrated because I'm like, this is all bullshit. Like this isn't giving me what I want. <laughs> so I was trying to learn more about Asian gangs and Chinatown and all of this stuff, but I didn't get very like very much information. I get it. Like I just want Google to work better when I'm like lighthearted. Washington crimes. I tried to go more lighthearted this week. I I let you know at the beginning, like I was like, oh, I'm gonna do a lighthearted case, and then I changed my mind. So I was gonna do um the life and death of Kurt Cobain. Oh, okay, that would have been interesting. Yeah, but it's not that interesting. So yeah. I like really. <sighs> To me, some people find it very, very interesting. Spencer was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll be excited listening to that. And I was like, okay. But it's only interesting if you believe the conspiracy theory that Courtney Love had him killed. Which I don't. He was like a horribly depressed person. He'd attempted suicide several times before he committed suicide. And she hired someone to try and find him before he did. It's very obvious that he actually committed suicide. So all these people who are like, she had him murdered. It's stupid. It doesn't make sense. It's not a good story. Everyone's tried to tell the story to make it interesting. And to make it interesting, you have to believe that she tried to have him killed. And I just don't. So I couldn't tell that as a good story. So I was researching it, I was watching documentaries, and literally I just was like, I'm, I don't care about this. I can't tell a good story about it because I don't believe this, like, conspiracy theory narrative. Yeah. And it, it's sad. It's a tragic story. Suicide is sad always, but it's been told many, many times, and I just couldn't do it. So that's why I read a book in two days and told this other story that was way more interesting. Well, reading a book in two days is pretty impressive to say. <laughs> yeah, I was like, uh, sorry, kids. <laughs> I'm just going to ignore you for two days. <laughs> but, um, sorry, that totally, like, sidetracked from what you were talking about, but. No, well, researching is hard. Researching is hard. <laughs> Finding, like, good Accurate information is hard. I really um, wanted to do a more lighthearted case this week, is what I was trying to get to. And it didn't well, happen. That didn't, that, yeah, that did not happen. <laughs> mine's, mine's not much more lighthearted, but there is a, an uptick at the end. Okay, so let's get to it, because I've been talking for like an hour already. Alright, so if we haven't lost you by now... <laughs> Like I said, it was in Chinatown in Seattle, Washington. And so it was called the Louisa Hotel. And it was purchased back in 1909, I think it was. 
So designed in 1909, not purchased. Okay. Um, but it was originally called the Louisa Hotel, and um, it operated as a hotel, but it was un- unable to comply with building codes, so it eventually ended up being just the street level um, that had kind of shops, and then there was two nightclubs in the basement level. Fun. So, and they, they had two separate entrances on, like, different sides. One was, like, on the east side, one was on the west side. Um, they were two separate clubs. <laughs> um, one was called Club Royale, and it was also later on called the Chinese Garden Club. It didn't uh, last very long. It was shut down in 1931, and then the other club was called Blue Heaven. Um, people visited this place to go gambling, dancing, and all kinds of different other forms of entertainment. By the 1950s, um, Blue Heaven was no longer called Blue Heaven, and that's when it became the Wami Club. Um, and in Chinese, Wami means beautiful China. <laughs> so that was interesting to me. Um, this club, the Wami Club, operated illegally uh, because it was supposed to close at midnight um, to be within the guidelines of blue laws. So blue laws, I don't know if you know what those are. Is I didn't. It, is it like anti-drinking laws? So it's not necessarily anti-drinking laws, but it's basically kind of the laws that um, required bars and things to close early, and then kind of the blue laws are also why a lot of stores and restaurants and liquor stores and everything are closed on Sunday. Oh, so like Utah. for worship and all these things. Yeah. So that's why the club operated illegally. And then by the 70s, um, they were raided. So that kind of put a kink in their operation, obviously. Um, by the 80s, they were kind of considered a dive bar. So they were just all over the place. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so the Wami Club. So they operated illegally. They had gambling, all kinds of things. So a lot of the times they had people in there gambling, you know, and gambling. Back then, we're in the 80s when this happened. So not too long ago. But <laughs> I mean, it was like 40 years ago. Well, I mean... Not too long ago, considering, but, <laughs> um, anyways, let me get to the point. I'm kind of, like, wasting time. So. I spent um, all of our time. You have to be quick this week. All right. So we're being quick. So, now we on, we are on the night of February 18th. So, there's a few men. 1983. The Wami Club. And they are going to do their gambling, whatever they want to do. So two men come in, and there's also a third man. The two men, Willie Mack and Benjamin, I don't know how to say the last name. It's just N-G. Give it a try. It's just N-G. The letter N, like Nancy, and then G. That's not a last so, name. He's a liar. So I don't I don't know how to say it. So I'm just gonna say N G every time. Okay. Um so Willie Mack and I don't think that's his 
legal name either, but that's what I'm going to go with because that was how it was in the majority of my research. I'm okay with it. Uh, so, Willie Mac, Benjamin N.G., and Tony N.G. Tony and Benjamin are not related, but they do share the same last name. That's uh, weird. Yeah. So Willie, they, Ben, and Tony. And Willie ends up being called Mac. So, Willie, Mac, Mac. <laughs> so Mac, Ben, follow. and Tony. Okay. That's not yeah. confusing at all. Alright. So, if you can follow, these <laughs> three gentlemen uh, go to the WAMI Club on the night of February 18, 1983. They show up, um, and because this place is pretty, like, low-key for gambling and they gotta be secure. They have pretty tight security to get in. So when they go, when you go in, you have to go through basically two sets of security. So there's two sets of doors that you get through. And so Willie Mack and Ben, Benjamin NG, they are well known. They go here, they gamble, they're well known. So they can easily get through security. So they bring along their buddy, Tony NG. Mm -hmm. um, and he's pretty kind of outspoken, I guess you could say. Um, and I learned more about that while I was researching the, the aftermath and kind of each of them individually. So anyways, they go in to this WAMI club. They get through security because they're well-known. So they're mm -hmm. like, oh, these guys are good. They're, we vouch know, for this guy. Yeah, so they get in. They're fine. And then all of a sudden when they get in there, um, they decide, well, they had decided, obviously, before they went in there, what they were going to do. So, Willie Mack, Benjamin and G, and Tony, they, Willie is up top. So, even though they're in the basement, there's kind of a upper level and a lower level. Okay. And so, Willie Mack is on the upper level, and he's just in there with a gun, like, hey, guys. Oh, no. Like, do what, do what we say. Oh. And so he's standing, hovering over everybody on the, the upper level with his gun pointed down. And so Benjamin and Tony proceed to hogtie all of the people in there. Oh my god, this escalated so quickly. <laughs> I literally was like, okay, yeah, they're going to go in and like, hang out and then someone else is going to massacre the place. No. Well, no uh. Yeah, we're getting into business. Ah, okay. So, Willie goes upstairs. Yes, Willie's upstairs with his gun, basically, like... Pointing at everybody. Like, supervising, I uh, guess you could say. Making everybody do what he says. Tony yeah. and... Benjamin. Ben are hog-tying everyone else in this club, these poor people in Chinatown. Yeah, so there's 14 of them in there. There's 14... Um, victims, so they are all being hogtied and robbed. Yeah. And so, after this goes on, Tony basically, he's just in there for no good reason. So this guy, Tony, like I said, he's kind of outspoken. Um, I don't know too much about him. I didn't research too much. But basically, it kind of sounds like he was just kind of a sucker a little bit. Oh. So, um, he had gambled prior, and supposedly, according to one of the articles I read, he had owed a 
a $1,000 debt to Willie Mack. Okay. So, um, he couldn't pay it, but Willie's like, hey, if you help me with this shakedown Ugh. of this club and you help me rob these people, like, I'll forgive your debt. Ugh, so, that's, that's, that's how he gets brought into the story. So, anyways, back to, they get their business done. And then Tony's like, okay, well, my work is done here. Like, these, I've robbed these people. I've hogtied them. I've done what he told me yeah, to do. we got their so money. I'm yeah. free of debt. Bye. So he leaves, and he goes to this club across the street, and he's supposed to just wait for Willie Mack and Benjamin and G to finish. So he goes across the street, and then all of a sudden, he hears gunshots. And... So I don't think that he was really fully aware of what the plan was that night. Ugh. But maybe I'm just naive. I don't know. Um, yeah, it's hard to say. Yeah. So I don't know if he if he fully knew what he was getting into that night. Ugh. So he's across the street. And then all of a sudden, I'm pretty positive it was Willie Mack that did all the killings. So basically, all of these people. These hogtied victims. Yeah, so they were hogtied victims. And let me back up. There was one person that's really important. Um, and he was a. It's a game called Pi Gow. You've probably heard of it, right? Uh, I don't know. So I don't, I know I've heard of it, but I don't really actually know what it is. But it's okay. like a card game. Yeah. Pie Gow. This guy was um, a Pie Gow dealer. So this guy, he worked at the Wami Club. His name was Y Chin. And so he was the Pie Gow dealer at the club. And Tony, before he left, he was the one tying up um, this dealer. And the dealer, he was an older gentleman, and he was like, look, you don't need to tie me so tight. Like, I'm an old man. Be nice. Be gentle. Whatever. Uh-huh. Um, so that's what that's what he had happened. So that needed to be mentioned. Um, so anyways, now fast forwarding. Uh-huh. Tony's gone. Willie Mack and Benjamin and G are left in the club with all of these victims that are tied up. There's 14 of them. So, um, as I could tell, Willie Mack is the one who decides to proceed to, to shoot all these people, like, execution style, Ugh. right in the head. Yeah, That's horrible. Awful. So, um, and as you, as we go on, because they were so well known, um, in the club, it was, there's rumors, I don't know how much is fact or what, not. Um, but it's rumors that he definitely knew he was going to go in there that night and he was going to kill these people because they could easily identify him because mm. he was a regular. Yeah. So he's he's not going to go in there and rob these people because they're going to be like, we know that guy, we know exactly Were Willie, Ben, and Tony Asian? Yes. Okay. Yes. Um, and Willie, Mac, and Benjamin, NG, um, Come to find out, they were also, like, suspects in another murder of people, um, of two ladies, but I didn't get into the details on that. Yeah. But they they were suspects. 
Um, okay, so there were 14 victims of the Wami massacre, 13 casualties and one survivor. The only survivor was that Pai Gao dealer, Mr. Chin. And so he was the, the club dealer. And he showed up to work at around 11.55 that night. And then quickly after, that's when Mac and Benjamin enter with the less familiar man, Tony, because nobody knew him. And then we already went through kind of the security, so they got through there, no problem, all that. So as the crime happened, uh, Tony did his business, he left. Um, let's see. Once the cops got there, 12 of the 14 victims were found dead on arrival. Mm. Uh, one was taken to the hospital but died of his injuries. And then the dealer, Wai Chen, he survived um, and he ID'd the suspect. So he made a, a pretty full well recovery. Um, there were some issues that he had, but he did fully recover. Um, and then according to the police, there was 32 shots fired. Um, 26 of them were fired from the same 22 caliber gun. <sighs> so, um, last week, my woman also used a 22 caliber gun. Yeah. So I thought that was interesting while I was going through this. I'm like, I don't know what's with all these 22 caliber guns and them being murder weapons. I think like, because... Twenty twos are considered like a light gun, quote unquote, but they're deadly and they're quieter and they're lighter and the ammo is way cheaper. So you yeah. can get a lot of ten twenty two ammo. I mean, maybe not in this day and age, but it is cheaper than most other bullets. You can get a lot more of it than other bullets. And it's yeah, that's true. lighter to carry and quieter. And less deadly. It's less deadly. But it's still fucking deadly. It's a fucking gun. It's... Yeah, it's definitely deadly. And unfortunately in this case, it was so deadly because each victim had been shot in the head. Oh my god. So, like I said, they were hostile. They were shot execution style. So, they... He definitely knew what he was doing Ugh. when he went in there, and he knew the end result. Well, and it said, wanted. like, 20-something of the shots were from 22. Yeah. Is it thought that he had both guns and shot, or, like, did he shoot most of them and then the other guy shot the other ones? It's, like, kind of up in the air because when they first get arrested... So, um, literally, it's the next day, February 19th. So, they get arrested pretty quickly. So, it's Benjamin N.G. that was ID'd, and so the cops go find him at his girlfriend's house, and there they find money and guns, and they're like, all right, dude, like, you're coming with us. So, they arrest him. Yeah. And then within hours, Willie Mack... Um, turns himself in, hmm. surprisingly. But at this point, um, Tony, he was the, the third suspect, but since the dealer, Mr. Chin, couldn't, like, ID him because he didn't know him, he wasn't well known, um, he fled. 
So hmm. Tony ends up going to Canada hmm. right immediately after. So. I wanted to feel like okay about Tony. I was hoping he like turned himself in and was like, I didn't know it was supposed to be this. But if he fled, then I'm more yeah. suspic- suspicious that he knew what was going on. He definitely panicked or definitely knew what was going on. Hmm. So, um, so February 24th, 1983, um, Benjamin and Willie Mack were charged with 13 counts of aggravated first-degree murder and one count of first-degree assault. Um, and then Tony, since he had fled, he obviously wasn't arrested, but um, he was still being charged um, on March 30th with 13 counts of aggravated first-degree murder. Uh, even though he was not around, he was still... Yeah, they were, yeah. They were pending, I guess you could say. Um, so for Benjamin and Willie Mack, they had a preliminary trial date for April 20th. So things were moving pretty quickly um, for them, sort of, I guess, February, March, April, two months later. Um, Benjamin, on August 25th, 1983, was convicted of 13 counts of aggravated first-degree murder, um, and it only took the jury two to three hours of deliberation. What year was this? Sorry. Where? What year? Oh, 1983. Wow. Yeah. Okay, so then he was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. So that's Benjamin. And then Willie Mack, he was up next um, October 6th, 1983. He was also convicted of 13 counts of aggravated first-degree murder and one count of first-degree assault. Um, he was also sentenced to death on October 22nd. He was, ex- However, you said um, also sentenced to death, but I thought the guy, first guy just got life. Yeah, so the first guy did get, get life, but I was just saying he was also, this Willie Mack was also sentenced to death in addition to the rest oh. of those charges. okay. Um, but, um... His death sentence was eventually overturned in 1991 because um, I brought this over so that I could read because I knew I was going to mess it up. <laughs> so the reason, the reason why he was uh, his death sentence was overturned was because um, there was two factors, and they. The prosecutors or the judge or whoever, the jurors, just kidding, I'm all over the place. <laughs> so because the jurors were not asked um, whether two factors made the case a capital crime, um, his death sentence was overturned. And okay. the two questions were, um, let's see, killing in the course of robbery and killing to conspire feel the robber's identity. So they were supposed to be asked if that applied in the case. Okay. And then they were also supposed to be asked if Mac was a major participant in the murders. But because they weren't asked those questions... It left it open for appeal. 
Yeah, and so they were able to overturn the death sentence. So his death sentence gets reversed. Um, so he's only sentenced to death, but obviously he is still in jail for life. Um, he will not be getting out. That's good. Um, and then the last guy left, Mr. Tony, NG, um, he was acquitted of murder in April of 1985. Yeah, I guess he wasn't there for any of the murders. But he was, um, convicted of robbery, 13 counts of first degree robbery and a single count of assault with a deadly weapon because, I mean, he did go there armed and... Yeah, that makes me really curious of if he actually knew what was going to happen. They were heavily armed. They got very situated. They hogtied all the people. But they had little tiny 22s. Like, you could conceal those pretty easily. Yeah. I just... And the fact that he left really plays into, like, him not knowing... That more was going to happen. Yeah. But it's just hard to come to terms with, like, fucking 13, 12 people, 13 people died. One person was injured. And it was an old man. And I have a sweet spot in my heart for old men. Yeah. That's, that sucks. But if he didn't know, I'm glad he didn't get charged with more, I guess. What did he get sentenced to? So, he was sentenced to... It was the equivalent of 34 to 35 years, um, but he did end up being granted parole in 2013. So he was released October 25th of 2013 from a state prison. Wow. Um, but he was given directly into the custody of U.S. Immigration and Customs, and he was deported to Hong Kong in May of 2014. What the fuck? Like, we're going to imprison you for 30 years and then just send you to Hong Kong, which is a completely separate country that you're not familiar with or comfortable with and, like, are going to have a really hard time emigrating to? Well, I think it's um, possible that he may have been yeah no like if they're deporting him there i'm sure he was from there but still he's been here for at least 30 years and it's just Uh like oh go find a life there bye that seems like why not deport him at the beginning of his sentence and be like this is a criminal we don't want him back you guys deal with him and then he could try and assimilate back into their society as a criminal. But now it's like we've punished him for 30 years. He has no cultural relevancy in our society or their society. But he has to just go try and be a Hong Kongian. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But it was just crazy to me because he was in Canada for like two years before he got arrested because he didn't even get arrested until October 4th. I mean, it was only one year. I'm real bad at math. (laughs) Um, In my notes, I said he was arrested on October 4th of 1984. Um, I said the 
which was almost two years after the crime. I guess it was technically almost two years. In February of 1985, it would have been two years. So it's close. Yeah, it's almost. Um, I mean, that's a long time to evade the authorities. Over a year and a half. Yeah. Um, So that's definitely an awful story, but... um, the Wami, after the massacre, uh, they definitely obviously shut their doors. They did not operate for quite some time. And then, so after the massacre, um, the doors were closed. They didn't operate. No one was living there for half a century since the massacre. Oh, wow. Um, and then in 2013, there was a fire, a structure fire in the building, so that ruined 40% of the building. So, so they shut down after the massacre, and then nothing was there happened. until 2014, and then a fire happened. Yes. So, well, the, the street shops were still there. Okay. The, the Wami Club in the basement was, was shut down, but there was still the street level kind of shop, and there was like a bakery, um, and some other things there. Okay. So those remained open, um, and what's really kind of interesting and cool about the story, um, this is kind of the lighter part of it, I guess okay. you could say. Um, so the owner of the Wami Club is Paul Wu, I think his name was, um, and he bought the, the building in the 60s. 1960s, and he um, operated a bakery on the street level shops throughout this whole time. And so, um, the crazy thing about it is when I was going through these stories, they had a reopening of the, the not the Wami Club, the Louisa Hotel. So, the hotel actually, okay. the upstairs portion. So, they reopened it actually in 2019. Oh, so wow. Not too long ago. In, I think it was June of 2019, they reopened it um, after kind of being refurbished. And so now it's now an 85-room apartment building for, um, like, median-income housing. That's neat. So, um, yeah, it's super cool. And when they reopened it, they decided they wanted to kind of keep the history there because it's the historic Chinatown. Um, they didn't want to kind of ruin any of that. So they... Even though with the fire they had to kind of demolish a portion of the building, the inside, yeah. they kept the, the exterior so they could redo it. Um, and so back to the owner, so Paul Wu, he owned the building in the 60s. His daughter, I don't remember her first name from my article, but um, his daughter kind of grew up and was around it her whole life because he did the bakery and she... In the article, she says that she remembers the top two floors being, like, closed. And she's like, it was just kind of creepy because nothing was in there. Yeah. Um, it was just kind of deteriorating. So it was pretty creepy. But yeah. she remembers that um, in her childhood. So now here we are in 2019. And the daughter of the guy, she now owns it. And she's the one who's reopening it. So she's just like, this is kind of neat. Like, it's cool for me to do this. Because I grew up here, it's like me sharing this with everybody else. Yeah. Um, 
kind of refurbished and recreated things. They tried to keep the historic items, and she even said they decorated parts of um, the apartment with kind of uh, artwork or different things that actually were in the shop that used to operate there. So it's pretty neat. Yeah, um, celebrating their culture in the area. Yeah, so that was kind of the the good upside to my story is kind of the the recreation of the Louisa Hotel, and now it's kind of um, back in the mix, and hopefully good things continue to happen and no more tragedy. Yeah, it can be a good memorial for the lives lost, but also a tribute to the culture and those people and a welcome place for Chinese people in the area and celebrating the diversity that America should be about. Yeah, and it was really interesting to me, and now I'm more interested in like learning about Chinatown and all the different things because there was some similarities and like connections from Chinatown in Washington, and a lot of the victims from the massacre were... Um, members of Chinatown in San Francisco. So, um, it was interesting. I didn't know that Chinatown and, like, Asian gangs were such a big thing. And now, I was Googling, like, Asian gang names, and they're hilarious. And that's (laughs) not, that's not good. But, I mean... (laughs) I mean, what are they? So... I wish I would have noted them, but, like, <laughs> I was just going through them, and I was like, what? I, I searched just Asian gangs, and, uh, let's see, there's, like, Asian boys, and then there's obviously, like, Asian crypts and whatever, like, normal, like, other gangs, but there's, like, all kinds of different ones, and some of them were just, like, it was weird to me, because I'm like, these these are really gang names? Like, they don't sound, like, gangy. Are these names. scary people? Or, like, is this well, a yeah, club? They, <laughs> I mean, you would think that they weren't scary off of some of the names, but I think that, like, they did do some pretty shady stuff. Okay, so, like, I've lived in Utah my entire life. You have traveled about a bit, but... Okay. <laughs> Uh, you grew up in Colorado, and you lived in California very briefly, and then Utah, and now Texas, and those are not Asian gang areas for the most part, so it's just odd to think that that's a thing, like, that's why it feels weird to us, but also, like, any violent gang doesn't feel real to me as a Utahn. Like, ooh, Utahns think anyone who's not Mormon is a violent gang. And as a non-Mormon, I'm like, yeah, bitches, suck it. (laughs) (laughs) So, I don't know. Asian boys represent. Asian boys, the Asian boys crib, um... Let's see, the Black Dragons, um, I don't know, they, they were just interesting, and I really wanted to, like, dig more into it and, like, get more information, but 
I just was getting nowhere, and I was really upset about it. So I was Why like, don't oh, gangs I'm have like, websites, damn it? <laughs> I was like, I just need to focus on my story <laughs> and figure it out so I can at least get my facts straight. And I'm still all over the place half the time, but... But if anyone's listening, and you're part of a gang, and you guys don't have a decent website, you should set one up and let us know, and we'll link to it in our show notes, and it will really help us out in this episode and in future episodes. Thank you so much. Yes. All of the knowledge. We appreciate your knowledge and help, and um, don't come looking for us, please. (laughs) this was a good show yeah this was it was a lot it was a lot so we are pulling out of Washington with a heavy load in the least dirty manner (laughs) as you can take that (laughs) not a good that's not a good exit so we're leaving Washington now. Goodbye. <laughs> and we're heading to Idaho. I live very close to Idaho. And I have no knowledge of good Idaho cases. So we'll see how next week goes. But uh, I'm going to try and dump my load from Washington between now and Idaho. And I hope you do the same, Amber. Join us next week in Idaho. Uh, Also, please follow us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. uh, Anything else you want to, leave us a rating or review on whatever app you listen on. All those good things you do for apps that you like, or I mean podcasts you like. We appreciate it. We're figuring this shit out as we go. And we will see you next week as we explore beautiful Idaho. Utah. Utah. Bye. Bye.